Welcome to our podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Carrie. And And this this is Filter Free. everyone welcome back to filter free this is alexis and carrie and today we are with a new friend maggie she has seven boys she's a working mama she has a lot going on and she is an advocate for foster care and adoption and we are so excited to have her today so welcome maggie thanks for having me i'm excited to be here yeah me too you want to go ahead and kind of give us a background on you kind of a little bit about your family how you have seven boys and kind of how you got into foster care (laughs) and just a little bit background of you. Yeah. So my husband and I were very, very young parents. We had our oldest son Deacon when we were 20 and 21. So got married young and started having a family young. I have wanted to adopt my whole life. Like literally first date told my husband, I want to have you know four biological children that I want to adopt to. I don't know why I came up (laughs) with that number, but it has been like My whole life, I have wanted to have a large family and I've wanted to adopt. I have been surrounded by adoption my entire life, but always either private or international adoption. And, you know, first date, my husband's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, fine. But I think once we got into building our family, he thought I was going to like forget about that. And Mm -hmm. I did not. (laughs) And I did not. So I will honestly say that that piece of our marriage was one of the biggest heaviest things that we carried because I still felt so strongly about adopting and he did not at all. And so it got to a point where I kind of had to say, okay, God, I either need you to put the fire out in my heart or put it in his, because we just need to be on the same page here. Now I am more than aware that foster care is not about adoption. It's not what it's about. Um, that's how it ends sometimes, but that's, that's not the heart of foster care. That's the heart of foster care is reunification. However, there are thousands of children in every state that need to be adopted. And so we actually started working with a teen mom ministry. And when we started working with them, we moved and moved into a home that had like a mother-in-law suite. It was our heart to host a teen mama that maybe needed a place to go. And we did. And we're still very, very close with her and her son. But as she was phasing out, Scott came to me one day and said, I'm ready to adopt, but it's going to be through foster care. And I said, Okay. Okay. Uh, like it just really hit me like very sudden. And I, I just kind of had made peace with the fact that it was never going to happen, that maybe this ministry was how we were going to serve. Maybe this is what we were called to. And then when he came to me and said that, I was like, okay. And so I started doing research. We went to our very first like info meeting. I remember sitting in the meeting and being like, he's, this is it. Like, this is the long and short of our foster care journey. Like he's never going to say yes to this. This is not, it's not going to happen. And we got in the car and he was like, okay, when do we start? And I was like, okay, um, I I guess I'll get it signed up. And it, it just kind of went from there. So we had done all of our classes. Um, we were very close to doing our home study And the teen mom ministry that we were working with actually called me because we used to babysit kids all the time. Like we had Mm -hmm. babies for a weekend or for an overnight or um, I mentored several girls. And so I would help them with appointments or, you know, resources, services. We had meetings like I I was very, very involved. Our family is very involved with this. And we were always the yes people. So I got a phone call saying there is a mama that needs a place for, for her son to go for just a weekend. Mm -hmm. Can he come stay with y'all? And I was like, yeah, sure. Absolutely. No problem. Next thing I know, I'm getting a call from a CPS caseworker. And she said, I heard that you are going to have Aiden for a few days. I need a a picture of him when you first get him. I need to know your address. I need your driver's license number. I've been told that you've been doing classes. I need to know that where he is and that he's not going to have access to his biological mother while he's with you. And I was like, oh, oh. okay. So this is, this is not what I thought it was going to be, but, but okay. So he, she brought him to me at dinner that night. I literally didn't even tell my husband that we were getting the baby for the weekend. Cause it happened all the time. Like he would just come home and there would be a baby there or several kids there. Like it just was normal. Mm-hmm. So he and I went to dinner. We were just having a day night and I was like, oh, by the way, um, 
there's going to be a baby that's going to meet us at the restaurant and he's going to stay with us for the weekend, but it's, it's no big deal. Um, he's going to meet back up with his, with his mom next week. And he was like, okay, like that was, that was it. And so we, we had him, we ended up having him for 10 days. Um, he went back to his bio mom. He was reunited with her at a, like a transitional living. It's amazing. Um, I absolutely love their program. They have teen mom cottages and there is a like house mom that lives there. And then there's, I think two or three rooms that a mama, a teen mama can live there with her child. They help them get jobs and cars and they help them finish high school. It is an amazing program. So I was so excited for him to be able to go and be there with her. I, I knew that it was going to be a good thing for them, help get them on the right foot. We were we, we were very happy about the whole situation, even wow. though the CPS part was still very muddy for me. I still don't really understand what was going on, but, you know, trusted that everything was going to be handled from that mm-hmm. point forward. Well, about three weeks later, I got a phone call that there um, had been a mishap and his bio mom was being discharged and he was not allowed to go home with her. So CPS mm-hmm. asked if he would come with us again. So he was placed with us as a kinship placement at that point. Mm-hmm. Aiden lived with us from eight to 18 months while mm-hmm. there was, you know, a case open. She worked services and they were reunified. It was a very volatile situation. It's terrifying for everybody involved. But one of those mm-hmm. things where unfortunately when it is kinship and there's not like a judge involved because it was with a safety plan, there's a lot less boxes to check off. And it got to a point where they they legally had to give him back. They didn't have a confidence in the situation that he was returning to, but they had to give him back. And so we had to just trust that the Lord was going to take care of him. I had a relationship with bio mom, had to put up some boundaries, but we did have a relationship and we were hopeful that she would continue a relationship with us after he was returned. And she didn't, she cut off all contact. It was, you know, reunification, like I said, is the goal of foster care. And it it was my greatest hope that things had changed, that I was wrong Mm -hmm. about my expectations for how it was going to end and that he would be safe, but it still felt like someone had cut off my arm when I handed him and lost all contact. I mean, he was very much part of our family. We had three older boys who were three, five, and seven at the time. And so Mm -hmm. to them, they didn't see visits because it was during school. They didn't really know a whole lot about what was going on because we had caseworkers that had come in and asked if they wanted him to be their brother. Because they do that sometimes. Yeah. Unfortunately. Do. So he was their brother. And then all of a sudden he was gone. And nothing prepared me for it. Even though I knew it was coming, nothing really prepares you for walking through that kind of grief when it feels like someone has died, but they're still walking around somewhere and you hope mm-hmm. that they're safe. And I knew enough to know that he wouldn't be. And when, so she was also pregnant at the same time. Oh, which makes it even more sticky because my greatest fear was that this new baby would be born. Cause he went home when she was, I think seven months pregnant. Wow. And like you're giving him back and this is not sustainable and she's going to have another baby. And this is just a recipe for disaster. I begged them to keep the case open through when this new baby was born and they didn't listen. And, um, when Aiden's baby brother banner was born, He was removed. They were both removed when Banner was two weeks old. He had severe non-accidental injuries. And there were stories that flew in all kinds of different directions. And one of the ways that she tried to cover up was blaming Aiden for it. And Mm -hmm. so at this time, her mentors had been very involved through the whole thing. Um, They played a huge part in getting him returned to her. Really and truly, they're liable for a lot of the abuse and the ways that my children have suffered and our family has suffered through this whole thing. But when Aiden and Banner were removed, they convinced CPS to separate them and hide them away from us so that we wouldn't know that they had been returned and that anything had happened. And so they were placed with more kinship placements, volunteers with another organization that were not foster parents, um, literally for the sake of hiding them from us and nothing other than just divine intervention. I got a call from the reach clinic at children's and I had still been on Aiden's paperwork from when he was with us and they thought he was with me. And so they called me and said, we found more injuries on Aiden's baby brother and we need you to bring him in for 
X-rays. I literally have goosebumps right now because I can still Ew, hear the voicemail. Like, um, hold up, I don't have them. That is God, though. Yeah. Wow. Um, I was at a work conference and I got the voicemail and I just screamed and dropped to my knees and I was like, please God, tell me where my baby is. Um, I called the doctor back. I I was like, I don't have him where, like, where is he? I, I need to know that he's okay. And she was like, oh shoot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. but I was like, they promised me he'd come back to me if something happened. I told him that he wasn't going to be safe. Like, please tell me that he's okay. And she was like, I can't, I can't tell you that, but here's the caseworker's number. She refused to take any of our calls. Was it the same case that had him before? No. Okay. No, this is a whole new investigation because they closed the case, even though I, I begged them not to, they closed the case. I called the original caseworker and I was like, what is going on here? You promised me yeah. that he, he would come back. Like what is going on? And she was like, you need to call a lawyer. So we did. We called. I flew home immediately. I was like, Scott, get me on the first flight back. We've got to find him. We've got to figure out what's going on here. I don't know where he is. They think he's with me. Is he still with with bio mom? Is he with someone else in the family? Like, what is going on here? They would not speak to me. They had been told that I was a baby snatcher, that I that, you know, it, it was just it was a whole it was a whole thing. I've got like the emails, you know, when you adopt after foster care, they give you their file. I found emails from, from all these other people that had, it, were, were supposed to be advocating for safety of the children. We're advocating for her. And this past February, she pled guilty to felony injury of a child. She stood up in court in front of a judge and God and me and everybody there and said that she was pleading guilty because she was guilty of the charges. Wow. So she literally tortured my child for the first two weeks of his life. And when you have a baby that can't speak, they let you just leave the hospital. They let you just go home. Nothing, nothing happened. Um, it took years of us fighting for criminal charges for anything to happen. But we also had to fight really hard in court to get Aiden back because the intervention laws say that if you are not a foster parent, if you, and then the child has been with you for six months or more, you can intervene. So we were not his actual foster parents technically right. because it was kinship, but because he had been with us for that amount of time previously, we were able to intervene, literally had to testify on the stand, like law and order style for hours mm -hmm. in an eight hour long intervener hearing. It was horrific to have to sit there and talk about everything that happened and, you know, be up against what I thought was just this army of people against us. Um, because between the teen mom ministry, like, why would you not believe a teen mom ministry that's saying that this bio mom is safe and that she didn't do this and mm -hmm. that she should have her children back and that I am the villain? Why would you not believe that? It just got really, really messy. And we we had to fight. We had to fight really hard. And in the end, I'll never forget the judge's words. He said, this is a huge disservice to this child for him to have not been returned to a place that he called home for so long and to mm -hmm. people that he knows is his family. I'm going to sleep really well tonight, knowing that I've righted this great wrong for him. Oh my gosh. Send him, send him back. Send him back. So this was the first taste of foster care for you. Yep. Wow. It <laughs> shoot my fire. Okay. First so shot out of the gate. My head is spinning. Okay. Let's. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot. At what point y'all got this? call about the babysitting. It turned into, you know, he goes back all this. Did y'all get when, like, did y'all get licensed as a foster family at any point during this? It was just kinship. No. Okay. Kinship. So you had him from eight to 18 months. That was just kinship. Just kinship. They would not allow us to get licensed because he was not technically a foster child because it was a safety plan. Uh, okay. Okay. So they said that if we got licensed, we would be expected to take a foster placement on top of Aiden. And at that point, that was not something that we were willing to do. I didn't think that we were going to need to. I really wasn't sure how it was going to all unfold, but it was, that was not in our cards at, at that point, but they only placed him with us because we had already done all that groundwork. Yeah. The case was so, there had been so many um, infractions leading up to the point that we got Aiden that they were like, either you take him as a kinship place and we do a safety plan or he's going into care. If he can't be with you, then we are going to open up a case. And so, you know, at the time it felt really tough 
because I, we didn't have those safeguards in place that there usually is with foster cases, like a judge Mm -hmm. and resources and actual therapy and and all of that. But once we got to the point where Aiden and Banner were removed for the second time and we were able to intervene, then I said, okay, God, I see what you were doing there. Like, I see why we weren't licensed. Cause had we been his foster parents during that time, we would not have been able to intervene and he would not have come home. Wow. It's so interesting, but you know, what's crazy is we served at a CPA for years and we saw a ton of kinship situations. And I think it's so good to highlight this because we haven't really done that yet. Just a kinship situation, because a lot of people find themselves in that you get a phone call and it's like, Hey, you know, I'm thinking of one foster mom and she recently got a call and it was like, Hey, I know you used to be a foster parent. My sister's kid is being removed. I can't take him. Can you? And so it's a stretch sometimes, but sometimes we look up and grandparents are in the situation of kinship and, and sometimes, so like your situation is unique, right? That's a godsend that you didn't because you needed to be able to intervene down the road to get both boys. But some families, I feel like sometimes the department doesn't really tell them some of the benefits that could come if they got licensed because families can get licensed and they get those, the judge, they get the CASA, they get the services, all the things that kind of helps them because they're grandparents. I can't even tell you, like we would look up and these grandparents are like, I have no idea what's going on. I don't know. And for us, right, it's a hundred percent of what we do. And so we can sit down with them and just say, Hey, look, this is kind of, this is how the courts work. This is when you'll have court, you know, and, and monetary reimbursement. I mean, grandparents, aunts, uncles, you know, they've raised grown kids and here they are on retirement. And then they're having to, you know, four mouths to feed. So I I hope that people understand that kinship is an option, but you can do it without having a foster placement or you can get licensed with an agency. And so if people find themselves in that situation, they need to know that, that that's an option, you know, because sometimes the department, I've had workers who have called and said, Hey, I've got grandma Susie. She really needs some help. Can you guys help her out? And that's awesome because it helps the kid and the child and helps that family unit stay together. You know, then sometimes we stumbled upon like upon families who had no clue. And by the grace of God, they were notified that this was an option. And, you know, so I think that's, it's interesting that your case worked out that way, but it is cool to kind of spotlight, you know, that kinship is is an option for foster care. Yes, definitely. You know. Well, and we did get, we got licensed after we got Banner. So when we intervened, we could only intervene for Aiden. We could not intervene for Banner. Uh-huh. For Banner, like I said, they had been separated. They were separated when they were placed in foster care. Yep. Because you're going to tell me they couldn't find a home for an 18 month old and a two week old together. Well, they were trying to say that Aiden had hurt Banner. Oh, that's right. Okay. So mm-hmm. the placements were volunteers with the same organization and they lived down the street from each other and they were not allowing the kids to have contact except for at visits with bio mom because she was still Mm -hmm. allowed to have visits. Mm -hmm. So Aiden witnessed the entire thing that happened to Banner for those whole two weeks. He he witnessed all of it. He, now that he's older, he was 22 months at the time and he's, he remembers everything. He has Mm -hmm. told us exactly what happened to his brother, but in his mind, he watched this baby be brutalized and then he left. Mm-hmm. So in his mind, Banner died. Like uh-huh. that baby died. Yeah. Only yeah. ever see him w- then when he was with bio mom. So then it, that's a whole another trauma. He, you know, he's wondering where the heck I am in all of this. Yeah. And a new daycare again, he still has to see them at these visits and this baby is back, but like, it just was, it was a lot for him. It was really hard. So we got Aiden back a few days after court and we were granted sibling visits. And at the time I didn't understand what the judge was doing, but now after the fact I I saw, basically he said we were to have banner for a minimum of six hours every weekend. Mm-hmm. And if the family needed date night or a sleepover or anything like that, we were to be preference. Normally in his courtroom, the rule was that he had to order placements. Like you couldn't, caseworkers couldn't just move the kids whenever they wanted. It had to be ordered by him. But he said, I do not need to sign over this baby moving to be with his sibling. If at some point CPS deems it in his best interest, mm-hmm. you, I'm already going to sign it. You, ha- you have my permission to do this. Mm-hmm. So at the time, Banner's placement 
still very much thought I was just awful. Because again, why would they not believe, you know, this yeah. bio who appeared to be innocent and teen mom ministry that says that I'm just a baby snatcher and I've, all I've ever wanted was to just take Aiden. That's what the misconception is. People think that's actually how it happens and it gets a foster parents about rap. That's not at all what, that's not what we're doing. Yep. And they knew about us. They, they knew that they knew the wrong side of us. They knew the incorrect version of us, but like in, in my mind, I just, obviously they thought they were doing the right thing. They actually, they made it insanely difficult for us to get banner for those first few weekends, like doing crazy stuff. Like they were getting like breast milk from a neighbor to give to him, like all kinds of stuff that is like not allowed, you know, just well-intended, but you can't do that. Like you can't, you can't give a stranger's breast milk to a baby with a TBI. That's not yours, you know? So it just was insane. So they made it very, very difficult on us. And then they said that they met with their pastor one weekend and he said, you guys are wrong. You're keeping him from his brother. You're not the ones that are in the right here. These people obviously are where Aiden, Aiden knows them. They're his home. You are choosing to keep Banner from his brother at this point. You're wrong. Can you look at him in the eye when he's older and tell him that you did the right thing here? Uh Preach. It's not the right thing. And they said that they just immediately were convicted. Good. They disrupted their placement that week. And then then he returned to us uh, or was was placed with us. Um, So it took a while for us to get both of them. But we had to fight so hard. For something that just should have been so easy. So unnecessary. How long was when Aiden and Banner were both removed? How long until he came, Aiden came to you? And then how long until Banner came to you? So Banner was taken to the hospital on June 30th and they were removed on July 1st. I got the phone call July 17th. Aiden was not placed back with us until September 13th. And then Banner, we did not get until October 1st. I think it was his placement date. And Aiden was like, so traumatized by the whole thing. Well, yeah. By the whole thing. We got the first like two or three sibling visits that we had were great because Banner didn't cry. I will literally never in my life forget the first time Aiden heard Banner cry in my house. Huge trigger. He had explosive acidic diarrhea that immediately ate all the skin on his, like the inside of his legs and his, his bottom screaming covering his ears, shaking, just uh, the wow. scream, that, the trauma scream under my kitchen table mm-hmm. because he heard his brother cry for the first time. Are you able to speak to her? And if you don't feel comfortable, that's okay. Like what exactly happened to him? This whole trauma, like Banner. So Banner has a traumatic brain injury from blunt trauma to his head. And then he had both of his legs, his femurs are both broken and he had multiple broken ribs as well. Um, and all of them were at different healing times. So he was taken to the ER because he was vomiting from the head trauma. It had happened a couple of days before he was taken in and he continued to vomit. And I thank God they took him in. He, he had like healing bruises on his face that were not from the head trauma. They were on the other side of his face from where the actual trauma was. Um, and so she tried to say, oh, do you see that bruise? His brother hit him with a toy on accident yesterday. It's like a green healing bruise. And they were like, absolutely not. So they did a CT, found the the, the brain damage. He has, he has permanent brain damage from strokes from the blunt force trauma. So it was a very like specific trauma. He didn't have any fractures, um, but it's being, it's from being um, hit repeatedly on like a soft surface. Mm-hmm. So and either like into the hospital, did she, or did the, she did, she took him to like a children's clinic um, and then medical city ambulanced him to the hospital. And they were very quickly able to say that it was not an accidental trauma. CPS was immediately called. But when they did the initial skeletal survey, when he was first brought in, he didn't, they couldn't see the breaks, but then when mm-hmm. they followed up two weeks later, because they usually do in situations like that, they did a follow-up skeletal survey. They saw all of the breaks and they were all at different healing times. So it was multiple different injuries, timings of things. And that's when I got the phone call. Thankfully, Aiden you know, his, his said that there was not, um, any physical injuries, but that he was very clearly abused. Like that's, that's the notes is that he clearly 
has been through trauma, but there's nothing that they could see like any broken bones or anything. So, um, uh, and like I said, it's been a criminal case and it's, it's very public. public. And so I'm, I'm free to speak to, to any of that now. How frustrating. I mean, I'm sure it's his mom too, but even just to hear that story to know, and we've run into situations like this to, you have that gut feeling when you take care of a child for a duration of time and you want to support reunification, but it's, you know, you feel like it's probably not going to pan out. I mean, I'm thinking I had one situation, a foster family, when we got these two small kids, it was awful. They had no running water. They were filthy. They, the one child, literally we thought she maybe had autism or um, like severe disabilities um, because she was mute and come to find out it was literally because no one was interacting with her. The parents showed up to every visit. They brought all the things. And and then it became a matter of like the department was partnered with a church and they were able to get them, you know, pay for utilities and all this. So they had this home to go home to, but the parents weren't paying for it and weren't didn't have a job and all this stuff. And it was like, okay, we're going to return the kids and we're, and the kids were thriving. You know, they had all these therapies set up and, and all this stuff. And it's like in our heart of hearts, you know, again, people probably looked at us like, oh, they're y'all are just trying to keep these kids. And it's like, no, we feel like when what happened, that church is not going to pay their bills forever. When they pull out, that is going to crumble. Thus they're going to be homeless. And then what, you know, yeah. that's exactly what happened. Those kids went home for however many months they came back into care and, um, by the grace of God, now they are adopted. And I so badly want to say, told you so, but it, that's so frustrating because it's just unnecessary trauma, more being removed, all this, you know, going back to see my prolongs them healing and moving on. It's unnecessary. And I know, you know, we're not always going to get it right all the time, but it's so frustrating when I understand wanting to reunify, but I don't know. We're missing something like, cause we, yeah. we're only just traumatizing these kids even further, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and had she and both of their biological dads, they have, they have different biological dads. Had, had they not signed over their rights? I really think that they would have gone back because she, again, completed all of her classes. She mm-hmm. checked yeah. every single box. She continued to say, well, I don't know what happened. And the department was like, if you can't tell us what happened, if we, if we don't know what happened, we can't ensure that it won't happen again. Mm-hmm. So even like, if it was you, just tell us it was you. We can work with that. Mm-hmm. But we can't work with throwing our hands up in the air, pointing fingers, saying we don't know what happened. Who's a two-week-old baby yeah. that had severe injuries that are going to have lifelong effects on him. You don't get to say you don't know what happened when you told the police you've never let him out of your sight. So when did the the criminal charges came after you guys intervened and after both kids were with you and she had worked things (laughs) or criminal charges, they, they weren't going to charge anybody. It's one of those things where we adopted and then COVID hit her sister actually ended up being pregnant and was living in the same home as her same home, same, same everything. Um, they both lived with their, their, their mother. So grandma, um, nothing had changed. And now there was going to be a new baby coming in and nothing, 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 nothing had happened. And after we adopted them, I put my foot down and I said, this is ridiculous. You don't get to have a baby with these kind of injuries and, and not do anything about it. Like you don't get to almost kill your child and then go home. I don't understand why they call it broken baby. And they're considered victimless crimes because they're under three years old and they can't speak for themselves. It is literally insane. Like under three makes up the largest demographic of children that are abused and that die from their injuries. But we don't prosecute that. What? Like it it literally makes no sense. Mm -hmm. So um, I actually walked into the police station with my binders full of evidence and everything that I had. And I said, there is another baby that is going to be born into that home in a week. During the time that her sister was pregnant, she actually, just days before she signed over the rights or after she signed over rights to my boys, she uh, physically attacked her and then fled. And there were, there were charges pending. She had gone to a different state to avoid being charged with that violence. So this is like, yeah, no, of this, this person, Um, it is not a one-time mental thing. Yeah. Yeah. Not at all. So, um, they, they were, had been looking for her and I'm like, she, she just moved back home. 
back into the home with her sister who she attacked saying she was intending to harm her baby. This baby's going to be born in a week. If you guys don't do anything about this and he gets hurt, it's on your hands at this point. Like, I I don't know what else to tell you about this, but this is a disaster a mile away from where we're sitting right now. You have to do something about it Mm -hmm. to protect that child. And, And they did. They went and found her in the home and arrested her and charged her with, you know, the family violence or whatever. It, it didn't work. She was right back there not long after, but that kind of spurred things. So the detective that was on the case from that family violence case where she attacked her sister is the same detective that was on my boy's case. Uh-huh. So I was able to kind of like loop all that in. And I was like, what are you going to do about this? Like, is she ever going to be charged? I'm, I'm very confused. I have all of this evidence here. Mm-hmm. It just continues to compound. I mean, yes, the longer we let it go, the, the more that adds up. But at some point, she has to be held responsible or she's going to just continue to get bolder. It's not going to get better. Yeah. Um, and he worked hard on it for, or so he said, for a little bit and then tried to pat me on the head and say, well, your kids are adopted and they're safe now with you. So I think they got their justice. <laughs> and I came unglued. (laughs) I was like, you've got to be kidding. You've got to be kidding me. So we went back and forth a little bit. I went to his superior and I, I was like, this can't be the standard for Denton County. Like, it's just not this, this is absolutely insane to me. And so I ended up taking matters into my own hands and I posted on Facebook. I posted a picture of Banner when he was itty bitty, posted his birth name, and I posted what happened to him, and I made it public, and I asked anybody that had any information about what had happened to him to come forward, and it got shared like thousands of times um, in mom groups, and and it made its way back to the people that it needed to make its way back to, and people started coming forward. That's and, so awesome. Good for you. And, and I passed it off to the DA. And, um, it still took another year from then because nothing moves quickly. Um, but she eventually was indicted by a grand jury and charged with felony injury to a child. She pled guilty in February for probation. So now she's on probation for six years. Um, uh, she's had one baby since then, and she's pregnant again with another. We'll see what happens. She, um, the previous baby that was born almost two years ago is with another family that we don't have any contact with. Which is, you know, a hole that'll be in our family and in our hearts for forever. Um, she should she should be with us. CPS intervened at the hospital and they lied to CPS and said that they were us. They said that um, they had adopted her brothers and um, that they were not going to have any contact with bio mom and that she would be safe. Um, all, all of that the- was a lie. Yep. CPS what? didn't do their due diligence there. They didn't do any looking to see that they were not us. Um, and they were allowed to take her home. And um, so they, know, knowing about us, also these people are also involved with teen mom ministry. Um, so it, the web just continues to grow there. Knowing about us um, chose to keep her from growing up with her brothers for the sake of having a relationship with the woman that almost killed them. So um, wait, so why was the other baby removed? She, so part of, part of her um, pre-trial probation, you know, stipulation. So when she was charged and arrested, they, she had to wear an ankle monitor. She had a very, very long list of um, like probation stipulations. It's the same. She literally was basically held as a sex offender. She had the same, like couldn't be within a thousand feet of a school. She couldn't have a job with other children. She could not live with children. She couldn't be alone with anybody under the age of 18. And so knowing that she knew she wasn't going to be able to to keep her. And she knew that if she went into foster care, she'd end up with us. So, you know, I got to sit in front of her in court in February and deliver an impact statement. And I got to say everything that I've ever wanted to say to her. Good heavens. Y'all have advocated like hell for these kids. And that's what, that's what a lot of these kids need. I mean, we need people who are strong enough and and don't back down and know your rights and know your abilities and, and get all your stuff and go to police stations and, you know, and make yeah. the calls. I mean, there are situations where kids leave and go home and it's like, Hey, if they ever come back, just let us know. Because yeah. if we can get some sort of consistency and quality of care, continue our continuity of care for these kids, we, they deserve at least that. 
And nothing is more heartbreaking when we just had, I mean, we're not in the case manager CPA world right now, but we still keep up with a lot of the foster families that um, we used to serve. And we just had a case recently where a child was removed. That was a sibling to a child who had been adopted. And that investigator did not do her due diligence and contact the child who are the family that adopted that brother. And so the child was placed with an alternate family and obviously they fell in love, loved her, you know, all the things. And then it's like, you know, a couple weeks later, it's like, Oh, by the way, she has a brother and she needs to go here. And it's like, and I know she's a baby, but that's unnecessary, you know? make the phone calls and, and look in the system that we have, we know that we have access to all these things in the system, make the phone call and keep that continuity, yes. you know, siblings, family together if you can. Yes. Well, my, so Aiden and Banner are my oldest two of the four that I've adopted. I also have another sibling set that are three and oh, he turned two today. When we got Dakota, um, got him at two weeks old. I was told that he had two older brothers that were, I was told that they were adopted. They were not actually adopted, but I was told that they were adopted and that we would only have him for a few days because he was going to go be with his brothers. And so after everything that we've been through with Aiden and Banner, I said, absolutely, I will fight for him to be with his brothers. Like, give me that baby. I will make sure that he gets to go be with his brothers. No problem. Yeah. Well, (laughs) the family that had his older brothers declined to have him placed with them. And we asked over and over and over they refused to do sibling visits. Nobody ordered sibling visits, which should have been, but they were in an adoptive home. They were together and they declined any kind of, con- not even contact with me. And it was heartbreaking. It was absolutely heartbreaking because just because of the circumstances that surround that case, we knew that he would not be returned. It was, we knew from very early on that he, that it would be an adoption case. Um, yeah. Did not at all think that it would be us adopting him. And one of his brothers um, could not see that writing on the wall, but it broke my heart. Yeah. And I needed to make sure that I was going to be able to look Dakota in the eye when he got older and tell him that I did everything I could to get him with his brothers. I mm-hmm. promised him that the first night that he was with me, that I would, I would make sure that he got to go be with his brothers. And, um, after parental rights had been signed over at about six months old, we got a phone call saying that his brothers had been moved weeks before they were supposed to be adopted, that they had been moved. Oh no. And, and I was like, okay, what happened there? And she said, well, they're wanting us to move Dakota to go be with, with his brothers, but I don't, I don't want to do that. And I said, I said, no, if, if it's possible for him to be with his brothers, I need you to explore that. Like he, mm-hmm. I, I promised him it, regardless of my heart and my family's heart, are, will we break over this? Absolutely. Because we just told his biological parents that we would adopt him. And he's very much part of us now, but if he can go be with his brothers, I will not be the person that stands in the way of that. Mm-hmm. So um, it ended up being that the, his brothers were moved eight times. Oh. This was their eighth ninth placement. And I was like, well, what is the reason for that? You know, what's going on there? Oldest brother has some very severe special needs. Um, Mm -hmm. and it was found that it would not be safe for Dakota to move, to be with them. But I fought really hard for a relationship with them and with Mm -hmm. their foster family. I met them once. And then uh, a few weeks later, I was told by that placement that the boys are being separated for serious safety concerns. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, well, if they're being separated, then I want, I want Hunter. I want the two-year-old because we're adopting Dakota, like literally just signed papers. We're six weeks, eight weeks out adopting him. I want Hunter then if, if they're going to be separated, we're not having kids go in three different ways and they fall contact with me. The department or the worker on that side or who? And the foster family would not speak to me. Um, I wrote a letter that I sent to caseworker, supervisor, attorney ad litem, because it was a totally different case, totally different county, region, all of it. I sent letters to everybody being very clear that like, he needs to be with his brother. If they're going to be separated, there's, there's no reason why he shouldn't be with us. Refused to have any contact with me. I showed up at court and (laughs) they were not very happy about that, but I drove an hour and a half and I showed up at court and I was like, I'm here. I have, I've been asking for weeks now for placement of him. I I don't understand what's going on here. This is the law. Yeah. Like the state always pushes siblings set, siblings set, like siblings need to be together. And then this one person, I don't, I don't want to. 
Yeah. It's like, they're like, oh, well, he's been moved too many times. Well, that's not my fault. And that right. sure as heck is his fault. Move him one more time and he'll never move again. And he'll be with his brother. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was, ter- it was awful. And this caseworker hated me. <laughs> she hated me. Um, but the judge saw through what was going on. And he said, you've not been following the sibling laws because the law says that they have to have weekly contact and monthly physical, a monthly visit at a minimum. And you've not been doing that. So we need to set that up. I went all the way up to, eventually it had to go all the way up to the commissioner of CPS because they were not following what they needed to be doing. They would not do a home study on us. They would not talk to us about it. And and I kept hitting roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. And you know, my fatal flaws, I don't take no for an answer. I just was like, this is, this is literally like life or death for my child. Yeah. And we're never going to see Hunter ever again, if I don't fight for him to be with us. And it took months. The commissioner, what did you, how did you get him? I, oh, I sent an email. I sent an email. Her information's public. I sent an email and then I left a voicemail. <laughs> like I was not, I was not playing with any of this. Like she ended up going, like the person that I worked with was the head of the region that Hunter was placed in. And I was a royal pain in her butt for months. Yeah. And I, I eventually I had to threaten a lawsuit. Like yeah. I filed complaints with the state. There was, I mean, I, I was like that we, we've adopted Dakota. I am kinship now. I've adopted his brother. What are we doing here? His caseworker, Hunter's caseworker, the first one ended up being moved off the case because she was doing shady, illegal things. And she was caught in the act of doing that. So she got it. We got a new caseworker and that new caseworker finally got the ball rolling to where they came out to our house and talked to us. And, but it took six months. We didn't get Hunter until December. Wow. And then when we finally did get the call that we were getting him, they were like, oh, well, it'll be a few weeks before we can fully transition him. And I was like, Christmas is in two weeks. You came to my house in October before, before Halloween to do this. You've already had six weeks to make a phone call. And now you're going to make him miss Christmas with his brother. Like this is insane. And what ended up happening was that foster family that loved him so much and was such, so, you know, wanted to adopt him and such an advocate for him said that they were taking him to the office the next day if the caseworker didn't go pick him up the next morning. Wow. Packed so, up all of his stuff while he was sleeping. And he was at my house at 9 a.m. the next morning. Because they were bitter. They were just going to do that to the child. Yep. Well, and what about their... And what to about, us. Yeah. And what about the brother with the special needs? Is he... Do we know if he's situated now and getting the services and the help? Yes. Where he is? Yes. So it took, it took me like eight weeks to figure out where he went. So it took weeks to figure out where he was. He ended up being moved to a therapeutic home in Austin and he was just adopted by them um, two months ago. They're wonderful. We have a very close relationship. The boys still, we have a Marco Polo chat. They talk back and forth several times a week. We've had visits with them. They're, they're tough. He struggles. There's very much a, a a severe trauma bond between him Mm -hmm. and and Hunter. And so it's tough for them. Um, it is my hope that with some space, um, and healing that we'll be able to come back together and they'll be able to have a more positive relationship as, as they grow, but we are very committed to them always knowing each other and always having a relationship. And that's something that I think that a lot of foster parents don't think about when they take even a single child is the reality is that child's going to have siblings at some point. Mm-hmm whether they end up coming into care, whether they are adopted by someone else, whether they stay with that biological family. And it is never, ever, ever okay for a foster or adoptive family to be the one to make the decision to sever a relationship between siblings. Sometimes yeah. it needs there needs to be space for, for safety reasons or whatever that may be. But like your sibling is the longest relationship that you'll ever have with anybody ever. I saw something on Instagram yesterday that said, your parents leave too soon. Your spouse comes too late. Your siblings mm-hmm. are the people that you'll know the longest in your whole life. Yeah. And there are some states that prioritize sibling relationships over even the parent-child relationship because of that. Yeah. So like, if you're not willing to allow your foster child to have a relationship with their siblings that are in another placement, yeah. if you're not willing to drive to those sibling visits, if you're not willing to have contact with those foster parents, if you're not willing to have a relationship with them once if everyone's adopted or cause at, at some point, if they're reunified, they all come back together. 
Right. And if they've had so much space and don't know each other, that's so much trauma for everybody still. So if, if you adopt a kiddo, that's an only, are you willing to then take siblings if, if you can, when they're older, are you willing to have a relationship? If you can't take those siblings, are you willing to have a relationship with, with their family? That's something that I think a lot of people don't think about. It's a good point to bring up that people need to be mindful of because it just comes with the territory. And I totally respect where some families, some people have to draw the line, right? You're at seven and in different states at capacity. Oh yeah. It's like, yes, you get a phone call tomorrow. You, you know, find yes. mentally, physically, like you just, we, I can respect people drawing a line and saying, I just can't take them. But if you can't, if you, yes. you should at least be able to, you know, uh, help kind of manifest that relationship with their siblings and make sure that they have, that they grow up knowing who these people are because they're not strangers and they shouldn't be strangers. I think, you know, with our, I know you were in Denton and had kiddos from different counties. So where we are, it's like we have the state of Texas is really doing doing hard work trying to like categorize the state. And we've talked about this a little bit with the podcast, but, you know, different areas, you know, Austin is kind of giving different areas funds to keep their kids home and keep them together if possible. And one of the things that our SSCC is really working on is sibling sets. And so, I mean, it's been in place for a while. It's still something that we're actively working on. It's a moving target. We have kids that are separated and sometimes we get sibling sets that are five and six deep and it's just not realistic to keep them together. But I think it's a very, very point. Um, And I'm so glad that we've been able to have this conversation. Just the siblings are so important. And so being mindful, regardless of if you come to create your own family, if you come to foster to adopt or you come just to foster, you're going to have to work somewhere to keep those sibling relationships together. Even if everybody on the team isn't, if it's, you know, it's, it's a law to have sibling contact. It's a law to do those things. And so be an advocate. I remember I did some work recently and reading a kid's service plan and he has siblings and it was like, you know, what does that contact look like? They're not happening. And so I told, you know, a contact, I was like, uh, I know I'm not here to discuss this, but that's not appropriate. He's got siblings. He's, he knows he has siblings, but he's a child. He can't, you know, he can't dictate that, but they need people in their corners that are going to advocate and it can be a foster parent. Yes, absolutely. How can people help? And why do you feel so compelled just to continue to be an advocate? There's all kinds of ways that people can help without being a foster parent. I mean, everyone's called to foster care. Not everyone's called to foster parenting in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Um, so that might look like being certified for respite. That might look like ask if you have a friend that's a foster parent, asking what days are visit days and helping with maybe a meal or offering to pick up the other kids from school on that day. Just knowing that those days are going to be harder. Ask when the kids' birthdays are, you know, birthdays are a big birthdays are a big thing and not all kiddos get celebrated, but honestly, just being a shoulder, it is really isolating and lonely being a foster parent um, because nobody else gets it unless you have other foster parent friends or foster family friends, nobody really gets it. And so even just like sharing space with them, yeah, helping, you know, laundry or asking how the kids are or asking what someone needs, um, donating, gently used or new clothes. Those are all things that are, that are needed, but it's really hard. I think at least for me, I have a hard time asking for help. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you just need someone to anticipate that need because I'm not going to ask for it because I'm just on autopilot. I know that visits are these days. I mean, our license is closed now once we adopted Hunter, but I knew that visits were these days. I know these were going to be the hard days. I've got all these practices. My husband's out of town. So I just need to get all these things done. And so a lot of times I didn't have the capacity to even ask for help, but there's a lot of ways that people can kind of step in and and help out. Yeah. You gave some really good, like if you know someone's a foster parent and you, you know, you feel comfortable just asking them, how can I help? Or the visit day thing. I really like that idea of just, you know, if you're close enough to know that those are visit days, is there anything I can do? Or here I'm, you know, sending pizza or something like that. Those, those days are rough and, um, yeah. I mean, just creating a network and a, and a uh, bond with other foster parents, because it is, it's a different journey. It's a unique journey and people that don't walk, walk in this line, don't really understand it. Yeah. And that's yeah. our hope with this podcast is to just get different versions. I mean, yours has been incredibly unique, but I think just getting the word out in general, you know, yeah. so people can try and relate or just really get a full picture of what, what they may be getting into. Yeah. And I think now that like once you've been in a space like this and you see the need and, um, the brokenness of the system, um, 
I don't know that I'll ever not be involved in some capacity. I mean, obviously we're not taking foster placements right now. We will always be open to siblings in, in whatever way, shape or form that might look like. But I just don't know that I can't just shut off. I know some people can, and they're, they're able to do that. That's not the way that I'm wired. Um, I'll always advocate for um, kids that are experiencing foster care for foster families. Um, that might look like being a CASA at some point. Um, mm-hmm. That might look like using our our farm once we get it up and running to help, you know, foster kiddos be able to come out and enjoy that or help fund their um, 4-H or FFA projects or whatever that might look like. I mean, I have lots of ideas as far as that goes, just to make things as normal for them as possible. There's always all kinds of ways that you can help without being a foster parent. And so I just think that I'll always... I'll always be of that mindset because that's been so hardwired into me for so long. I feel that. I'm how you and your husband are doing. It seems like a lot of trauma in a short amount of time. So do you guys have have support outwards? Like what, how does that look right now? So uh, right now we are, we moved to North Carolina. We made the decision as a family to move out here. Um, Honestly, when we closed that foster care chapter to kind of put some space there with the criminal case ending um, the way that it did and just really wanting to kind of start fresh in a way. Um, But I have family here. We're living with my parents right now while we're building a house. My sister and her family live here. So does my brother. Um, Both my brothers live here. So we moved to from one family to be with another, you know, side of the family. And so we definitely have a lot of support, but I've been in counseling for years and years and years. My husband and I both have, I have a fantastic counselor that knows me inside and out that I, you know, saw long before we started fostering, which has made a huge, huge impact. I don't know. I could, I could not have survived without her. And thankfully, yeah. you know, she's a Christian and points me to Jesus through, through all of it, even when I want to just, you know, make heads roll because that's how it is sometimes <laughs> in foster care. I mean, you just got to burn it down sometimes. Um, I know that the Lord equipped me with, the, you know, the, my strengths and with the resources that I have, because he knew that there would be a day that I would need to fight for my children, to keep them together, to get them safe, to get them the things that they need. Um, and I'll do that for the rest of my life. But, um, yeah, it's, it's been tough there. This has definitely been, um, a fire that we've had to walk through, but now that we're, yeah. I don't want to say on the other side, cause you never really are. Um, it never really ends whether, that's trauma that you still deal with, with your kiddos, or, I mean, they're always, you know, they're always adopted. There's always stuff that goes along with being right. adopted or having walked through years of, of care and trauma and all that. But, um, you know, I think that this has been really, really, really good for us. And so we're doing well. Um, there's going to be tough times I'm sure. And like I said, it never really ends, but at the same time, like we made the decision to come here to kind of put some space and close a chapter, start a new one yeah. and move forward as a family unit. Yeah. I love it. Me too. Well, I really appreciate your time. I think, I know I've already touched on it, but this, just this kinship perspective, this, um, sibling set perspective is really something that we haven't touched on. And so I think that, that it's important to get that word out there because it is a huge component to what we do and just to foster care in general. So I think that this will really be a light for a lot of people. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much.